In this session, we're going to look at respiratory movements and also at the diaphragm in a bit more detail. If we look at these images of the lateral and anteroposterior chests, it becomes quite clear that the upper ribs virtually approximate each other with the manubrium intervening, and as they lie at an angle, the upper chest could only possibly increase in diameter in an anteroposterior direction. Whereas in the lower chest, beyond the seventh rib, which is the last to attach the manubrium, the ribs are not in continuity anteriorly, and therefore they can swing laterally, and there is maximum expansion in the lateral direction. Now, to allow this to happen, the costovertebral joints must be different in the two areas. In the upper chest, the joints must be allowed to rotate, whereas in the lower chest, where there's lateral expansion, there will be gliding of these joints. So we can summarise the movements that in the upper chest, there is what we call a pump handle movement on inspiration, with virtually all the expansion in an anteroposterior direction, and virtually no or perhaps minimal lateral expansion. Whereas in the lower chest, in quiet inspiration, the costal margins separate, producing lateral and slight upward movement of the whole of the lower thorax. Please note that at this point we have not yet mentioned the common phrase of bucket handle movement. But in forced inspiration, there is an additional eversion of the last few ribs by the diaphragm pulling on them. And this is what is known as bucket handle movement. We haven't illustrated this on the picture we're showing you. This bucket handle movement only occurs at the very height of forced inspiration. So having defined the type of movements that can occur, now let's look at the events of inspiration and expiration a little bit more fully. So at rest, in quiet breathing, it is just the domes or the cupola of the diaphragm that simply move up and downwards. Any activity of the intercostal muscles is probably mostly in the lower chest with lateral expansion. But as respiration becomes more active, then the upper intercostal muscles probably come into play more. During inspiration, the arima of the larynx is, of course, also opening. During deeper inspiration, there is more expansion of the lower chest and then more expansion also of the upper chest. There is more powerful contraction of the various muscles and the first rib is elevated. In forced inspiration, the diaphragm becomes more active, there's relaxation of the abdominal muscles, and there are a number of accessory muscles which come into action. For some of these to work effectively, we have to fix the arms. It is said that for every centimetre increase in the circumference of the chest wall, there is an increased intake of 200 ml of air. In addition, the erector spiny muscles decrease the 
curvature of the thoracic vertebrae and this increases the general capacity of the chest. So let's look now at some of the accessory muscles. The sternocleidomastoid is acting on the clavicle and the manubrium to pull them upwards. Trapezius plays a very important part in both inspiration and expiration and acts most effectively when the arm is fixed. Pectoralis minor is inserted down onto the upper ribs and that will help once again when the arm is fixed. And then the scalene muscles lift the first rib. The quadratus lumborum holds the lower ribs down and there is often dilatation of the nostrils, the larynx, the trachea and the bronchi the latter being under the control of the autonomic nervous system. And finally, the muscle platysma can pull the edges of the mouth so that more air enters it. Expiration is a much simpler affair, and it is largely due to the elastic recoil of the lungs. Any increase in intra-abdominal pressure will aid expiration, and this can be achieved either by contraction of the abdominal muscles or leaning forward and compressing the abdominal contents. And there is one muscle in particular that aids expiration, and that is latissimus dorsi, as it attaches from the lumbar fascia upwards and onto the lower ribs. So now let's look at the diaphragm in a bit more detail. The diaphragm arises from the xiphoid and the tips and costal cartilages of ribs 7 to 12. Posteriorly, there is a central median arcuate ligament that attaches to the sides of the body of L1 and then laterally extends as the medial arcuate ligament to the transverse processes of L1. And then there's a further extension on each side as the lateral arcuate ligament to the tip of the twelfth rib. The muscle quadratus lumborum passes posteriorly to the lateral arcuate ligament, whereas psoas passes posteriorly to the medial arcuate ligament. Passing posteriorly to the median arcuate ligament is the aorta, the cisterna chile, which is becoming the thoracic duct, and the ascending lumbar veins, which join the subcostal veins to become the azygos systems. Lying on psoas, behind the medial arcuate ligament, is the sympathetic chain, and on quadratus lumborum, behind the lateral arcuate ligament, is the subcostal neurovascular bundle. The muscle of the diaphragm inserts into a central tendon through which passes, on the right side, the inferior vena cava, accompanied by the right phrenic nerve. Note that the left phrenic nerve passes through the muscle itself on the left side. Lateral to the attachment to the xiphoid on each side are the superior epigastric vessels. Then we can look at the crura of the diaphragm. On the right it arises from the sides of the bodies of L1 to 3, whereas on the left side it comes from the bodies of just L1 and 2. 
The crust on the right passes around the esophagus as a loop and it is joined to some extent by the left crust. Passing through each of the crura are the greater, lesser and least splachnic nerves which are the sympathetic supply from the chest into the abdomen. Through the esophageal opening passes the esophagus with the left vagus anterior to it and the right vagus posterior. And in addition are the esophageal branches of the left gastric artery and vein, the vein being particularly important because it is involved in the portosystemic anastomosis at the lower end of the esophagus and can lead to esophageal varices in raised portal pressure. So we can then summarise the levels, the vertebral levels of structures that either pass through the diaphragm or behind it. So at T8 we have the inferior vena cava and the right phrenic nerve. At T10 we have the esophagus and the other structures we mentioned that pass through the same orifice. And then behind the median arcuate ligament are the other structures including the aorta and this orifice lies at T12. The motor nerve supply of the diaphragm is of course the phrenic nerves and it should be remembered that the phrenic nerves also have a major sensory component both for the diaphragm itself and for the peritoneum and pleura that lie on either side of it. And with that description of the diaphragm we'll end this particular session. Please visit our website at incidentanatomy.net where you can find the complete collection of all our podcasts. You can also subscribe, download or order any of our material. You will also find full details of our range of mobile apps.